there's a time where, and it's going to be different for different midwives, but there's a time where either physically or emotionally or both, or maybe for some midwives, even mentally, we're not at our optimum anymore. And we got a lot of good stories to tell, like we're doing tonight. And we can we can teach for sure. We can write books. Yeah. Um, but I being on I, the front lines, I, maybe not no longer need to be on the front lines. I think midwives need to learn that they are replaceable. They really Ooh. are replaceable. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor, and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife Rx. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Welcome back to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast, and I'm so excited to have a couple guests with me today. We are talking about after midwifery. What happens after midwifery? You could retire. You don't have to do this forever. And what does it look like? We've got two people who have chosen that pathway. And I'm so excited to welcome Vicki and Pat. And um, let's do a little intro. Um, Vicki, let's start with you. Tell us where in the world you practiced, where you are, how long you practice. Just give us a little overview. Well, let's see here. I started um, in 19... 74 in rural West Virginia, and it was a self-study kind of thing. Um, 1974. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. Hold on. Original. Wait, where in West Virginia? I'm going to have to, <laughs> this is very interesting. Where in West Virginia? Oh, um, we were living, uh, as were many people in that era, um, off the grid, way off the grid, um, in near Harrisville, West Virginia, which is north central west virginia if you know if you're familiar oh my gosh well i have something crazy to tell you vicky i'm sorry to interrupt you but no um, good my parents were off the grid hippie communes people in west virginia and i was an attempted home birth (laughs) in Uh, west virginia uh, and they lived north of the greenbrier hotel in greenville do you know that area Okay. Okay. I know that area. We had friends that were down there. Yeah. Yeah. The West Virginia Free Council was founded in 1975 with six midwives. 
it's grown yes. exponentially. Yes. So since I then, was born yeah. in 1976, and I'm right? wondering if um, we should track down like <laughs> some of my midwife. I don't know. My my um, my mother called her aunt from Colorado, who was a midwifery student in okay. Durango, and that's who came out. But yeah, interesting. They had lots of studies. Cool. There was a lot of unassisted births happening then. Um, intentionally unassisted. And um, I remember reading about um, our neighbor was really connected with, was it Marilyn? Do you remember Marilyn? Um, Sorry. What was her name? She was very, she was very active in publishing unassisted birth stories. Okay. And a lot of them came out of West Virginia. Anyway, I love that you were there. I love this little tiny connection. So keep telling the story. You the practiced no, there for now 30, 40, oh God, how long? 43 years altogether before. Wow. I yeah. Wow. It, it wasn't all in West Virginia. Um, I did move to Florida. And once I did that, I went into midwifery school because that was the only way to continue legally practicing. And oh. over the years, I had decided that I really needed to have access to labs backup physicians, medications, oxygen. I had none of that in, in West Virginia. There was no, no pathway to acquire any of that stuff. What a huge shift in practice. You went from basically like traditional midwifery to modern midwifery. Um, Sort of the, I was lucky enough to do my clinicals in a hospital that was very open um, and the head OB was, was very supportive of midwifery. And when I left that clinical practice and went into practice on my own, they actually hired a nurse midwife. They finally figured that out, that they needed one there. Wow. Um, I felt it was very helpful for me to have kind of a foot on both sides of the fence. And you learn how all that works and you pick up what you need to pick up and you put down what you need to put down. But it made... It definitely assisted my learning scope, gave me access to much, many more people, many more people in the community, the health department, the maternal fetal medicine folks, all those people. Um, because a lot of my education in the hospital was, you know, I would never try this at home. <laughs> this, is, this is way off the beaten path. I don't mind being able to hit a button and have 20 people run in the room but I would never even attempt this particular situation out of hospital because it's way out there, way out there. Wow, that's really good. Like, that's a really good awareness. Like it, it actually made you almost more conservative, could you say? Like seeing the difference, you could, you could be really clear about your boundaries. Exactly, and I knew what people were trying to avoid and I have always been a major informed consent proponent um, ever since I started. And that was a thing that I was able to, after years and years and years of contact with the hospital, push that in just a little bit. Um, so they were thinking more of what are you doing to these moms? You're just rough riding over these moms and they sign a blanket consent form and you basically lay them on the table and make them do your kind of birth. Well, I call it a mic birth. You get a you know, ooh, come in for your birth, and you get a baby that goes out the door in a plastic container. And they didn't like me very much when I left there. But it well, was Vicky, I like you. I think this is okay. fantastic. 
And thank you so much for chatting with us today. We are going to go into some some really exciting topics. Let's bring yeah. um, Pat in. Pat, tell us your history. Where did you practice from? And 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 how? Like, tell us the story. Where were you? Where are you now? All those things. Um, some of it is parallel to Vicky's story. Okay. Um, I practiced for thirty seven years, so she's got a few on me. Um, Amazing. I, I have four children of my own. The third one was an unassisted intentional birth. And at this point in my life, I'm not real in favor of those. Um, but at the time, I guess God took care of us. <laughs> so um, after that, people started asking me, will you come and help me at my birth? And I was like, mm, I'm totally not qualified to do that. Um, and then out of the blue, this woman calls me. She was married to a captain in the Air Force. They lived on an Air Force base about an hour's drive from where I lived. And she said, I heard that you're interested in birth and babies. And would you like to be an apprentice midwife? And I was just, <laughs> thank you. Lord. Yeah, I was like, well, I that's not very often that that happens, birthday. that you get the call, it, right? That, yeah, that was a literal that. call to and midwifery. So, that's fantastic. <laughs> she was the most wonderful, um, um, articulate, kind, uh, strict teacher that a midwife could ever have. She was just absolutely amazing. Wow. I did a two-year apprenticeship with her. Now, that was in Indiana, okay? Okay where being a midwife was a felony. And it was right. for a long time. They only recently got legal there. Um, right. Because of the legal status, my husband and I decided that probably raising four kids and being an outlaw was not the greatest idea. So we did our homework. There was no internet yet. Had to do a lot of looking at the library and making phone calls and found out that in Wyoming, um, midwifery was exempt from the practice of medicine. Uh -huh. and that's all the law said was it was exempt from the practice of medicine. Great. So we being the hippie people, just like Vicki and her tribe, um, <laughs> we, we packed up our painted school bus and drove to Wyoming. And you know, found a place to live there and I opened my practice and we thought everything was going to be lovely, but the doctors there were not so welcoming. Um, and it would take me hours to go through that whole story. But um, it started out with them making it known to the public that she's not even a nurse. That was said numbers of right. times. So I enrolled in nursing school. At that point, mm -hmm. I was, I think I was 37 years old, but I enrolled in nursing school. And as I was a student, the medical board for the state decided to take me to court for practicing medicine without a license, even though the law said in the Medical Practices Act that midwives were exempt from the practice of medicine. 
where it was all screwed up turned out to be a typo, if you can believe this. And it took two years to decide, for the judge to decide what to do and thousands and thousands of dollars. And it was just, it was hideous. But I graduated from nursing school and I kept on catching babies through the whole mess. Um, The way the law read was we were exempt from the practice of medicine, but we could not do certain tasks listed in Roman numeral, whatever, X, Y, Z, and that Roman numeral was a typo. So it took you to the wrong part of the Medical Practices Act, which was a list of procedures. Are you ready for this? That blind, blind doctors were not allowed to perform, which included (laughs) delivering babies. So I could deliver babies, but I couldn't deliver babies. And it was just utterly insane. So round and round and round. And in 1990, the judge finally said, okay, we're going to say that you can deliver babies, but you can't do any of the other things that midwives do. Prenatal care. No prenatal care. Um, No postpartum. And and so on. What? Again, it's a very crazy wacko story. So what I did was I moved my practice up over the state line into Montana, and my Wyoming people would drive up to Montana and have their babies up there. Now the happy wow. ending story was wow. yeah, 20 years later, 20 years later, the governor of Wyoming assigned me to sit on their newly formed licensing board for midwives. So wow. same, yeah, even wow. though I was, at that point I'd been in Montana for quite a while. So it's just kind of, you know, we all have our stories, but yeah, it was. But, but the fascinating thing about both of you and the, and the reason I wanted to invite you on is that you have now lived enough that you can see the other side of the stories. And this is what I think can be so inspiring for the people still in the trenches. So kind of the next question I want to ask you is, if you look back over your career from when you started and it was still not a thing in the United States, midwifery had been driven out almost to extinction in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And there was this slight beginnings of a resurgence, um, at least in white midwifery communities, it was starting to come back. And, um, and uh, uh, Ina May was a part of that. And Rahima Baldwin Dancy was a part of that. And Nancy Wayner Cohen and all these folks that wrote books and became quite, quite well known. You guys were in that same era doing it you know, kind of quietly and under the radar, obviously, because people don't know your names publicly. But I would say, um, if you think back over that, what has changed so visibly? Like, obviously, Pat, that was a perfect example of like, first, I was, you know, ridiculed and, you know, charged and, you know, had to move. And now I was asked to sit on the board. That's a perfect example of that 20 year arc of change. What else has changed when you think back over your careers in midwifery, 
in politics, in legality? What's so different now than it was when you started 37 and 43 years ago or more? Like, I don't know how long you've been out of midwifery, but all that Well, time. I retired in 2019. Okay. So I've Good been timing. <laughs> you missed yeah. the crisis, right? I missed the COVID. I sure did. Yes. Um, I would say the educational options have changed and I'm not sure they change for the better. That's kind of my position. What do you think, Vicki? Yeah. I think I agree with you completely. I would say that the internet and access to instant information um, has changed the clientele of people who want and have access to that information about birth. Um, as far as the midwives, I think it's still the same old, same old, unfortunately. There's, there's still a lot of backbiting. There's still uh, this faction against that faction. People wanna claim their own definition of what midwifery is, or the state wants to claim what midwifery is, which is what Pat was referring to. Um, it's, it's a little more popular. It's not a whole lot more popular. I think the latest statistics are four out of a hundred and they were less than one out of a hundred when we started. Um, it, it's, very I don't think we're at 4% yet. I think we're still at between two and 3% in most states. Okay. Okay. In the West coast, there's some areas that are upwards of 6%, but you know, there's places where there's no midwives at all. Right. And we still have people, even in legal, legal, um, unquote, states where it's actually required that you have a license and or certification to practice. There's still this whole flood of people that are practicing supposedly under the radar, but posting all their videos on YouTube um, <laughs> and getting into problems that they yeah. had they been trained or certified or come up to any kind of a standard, they would not have made the dumb mistakes that some of them are making, unfortunately. Well, it's an interesting point. And I want to stay here for a second because um, like, I think Pat, you said, I also had intentional unassisted birth at the very beginning of my career. Um, I've been doing this for 20 years, not as long as you all, but I, I have the perspective to look back and be like, hmm, that's not how I would do it now. So since right. both of you started right. like apprentice trained yourself, is it not that many of these birth keepers or folks practicing under the radar are, are at the beginning of their trajectory, much like the three of us were? Maybe, but they you know, yeah. at, at the time there were no midwives around. There was no access. So the, so you had right. no other option. You yeah. Uh -huh. apprentice. I didn't apprentice. We basically saw, taught ourselves. You right. know, there was a collective of about three or four of us ladies, um, all of us hippies, if you want the term, that were yeah. pregnant, having babies, and we taught each other all the things right. that we needed to have. Right, right. Yeah, and now right? they're doing they're doing the same thing. I think many of them get together and have study groups, or because of the internet, have instant right. access to each other. And your argument is like, there are resources, go use the resources. And I think, I mean, and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate because I have some grave concerns about some of the birth keepers in the United States, but, but maybe they're, they're using modern mainstream 
licensed, credentialed midwifery in the same vein as we saw the medical model when, when we started, like you, we have to be outside of that because that's injuring women. Right. It's, it's an interesting place to be. And, and Vicki, I'm certainly, I'm not picking on you at all. I just for the fun of conversation, I, I agree with you in a lot of ways, but, but it's an interesting conversation to, to reflect on, on how things get started, on how we begin on these paths. Obviously, we're also going to talk about how things end and how we transition out. And that's, of course, why I had you. But with your great perspective and your huge amount of of knowledge and wisdom and time that you've seen this in, is, is midwifery in worse state than when you remember it a decade, two decades, three, four decades ago? I don't think it's in a worse state. I think uh, Mr. and Mrs. general population are now much more aware of the term midwifery and what that means somewhat. They don't follow all the alphabet soup that goes with it or perhaps aren't aware in their particular location. Is this legal? Is that legal? Can you do twins? Can you do breaches? you know, do you have the ability to follow us into the hospital and supervise our care while you're in the hospital? In most cases, no way, unless you happen to be a CNM with privileges, Um, but there aren't actually a whole lot of those. Is it in better shape? I think it's more well-known, call the midwife. I mean, that show has kind of proven that's huge, yeah. For many yeah, reasons. I think Ricky Lake's Ricky Lake's show on um, the business right. of being born in 2007, right. and then um, Call the Midwife when that launched. Those two have been instumental in 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 the resurgence of midwifery. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I agree. About, even though it's supposed to be back in the 50s, you can look at, at but it's the same. Birth is the up. same, right? They're talking about <laughs> abortion. They're talking about multiple yep. births. They're talking about placental extractions, they're talking about, um, you know, all of the thalidomide issue. You know, I knew people that had taken thalidomide and had babies that were very much affected by that. They're kind of living through all those issues and they they still are, uh, you know, very much in the public eye today. They should be. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. How about you, Pat? Do you feel like midwifery is in better shape? What What's changed in your years of practice, Pat? Just that people know what a midwife is, or at least they think they know what a midwife is. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of just the educational route, I was so fortunate to have, you know, this midwife show up. Her husband got transferred to this Air Force base. So picture the little hippie girl with the braids right. driving her Volkswagen to the Air Force base once a week <laughs> to study with this Air Force wife. So great. Literally, I'm not kidding, literally wearing the felt skirts with the poodles on them. I mean, do you remember that? I mean, you probably don't. Yes. Vicky, I don't, but I, uh, I remember well, pictures. I, but you know what, even though we disagreed on religion and politics and child rearing, and we loved each other. And, and she uh-huh. was so dynamic and wonderful. And I felt like thorough. And what's going on now, and I, I think it was all well intended. I think 
the MEEK accredited schools, seriously, I think that's all well intended, but there's a disconnect in my opinion, because when I was being trained, let's say we'd go to a birth and we'd have a teenage mom, or we'd go to a birth and we'd have a shoulder dystocia. Whatever the unique thing was about that particular birth, that week or that month following that birth, she would bring out every book, every film, every story about that particular topic and teach me. And it stuck because I'd just been to a birth like that. You know, I it was case related, yeah, about case that related education yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. But with the students that I've had, and I've, I've really tried to give them the best I could, oftentimes they're studying footling breach from their online program right. while we're attending a birth that turns out to be a massive hemorrhage. There is a disconnect there. Do you see what I mean? So I, don't, I think it's possible to improve that, but it's going to take a long time. When I went to nursing yeah. school, which by the way, was nothing compared to my apprenticeship training. My apprenticeship was far superior. But when I went to nursing school, I would say there was a little bit more of what we saw in clinicals. We come back to the classroom and we would learn about that. Not all the time, but at least part of the time. I just don't see the online training and the hands-on training um, meshing the way it when should. they're divorced from each other you yeah. don't get that connection and learning right. yeah. yeah it's interesting there are several med schools that have started this case-based education where it is all related to what they're studying um and i i've heard some fantastic reviews that it's it's it goes into the brain where it belongs instead of route memorization you're actually learning yeah. Um, and, and that's one of the things that apprenticeship is so brilliant at. But now with this requirement of didactic education separate from clinical education, you're saying it's really divorced from each other. And, and I agree. We need I both. think in a lot of ways it is. We need yeah. both. They just need to be sure. synchronized a little better. Right? Synchronized. That's interesting. Okay. I like that. Well, so Pat, thinking back over your career, what's different? What's changed uh, of the whole political landscape? Obviously, people know about midwifery more. We're, we're getting close to critical mass where the whole populace knows about it and those who want it can choose it. That wasn't the case 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. No. What else is different? What else is different? Um, one thing that I found probably in the, I'd say the last 10 years of my practice that I really enjoyed and got a kick out of was that when I needed to transport or if I needed to make a referral during pregnancy or if I just needed to communicate with a physician, they took me seriously. And part of that was because I'd established a pretty good reputation finally. Mm -hmm. But part of it was because I was older than they were. <laughs> I mean, it's old. Yeah, I'm older than you, dude. You know, they, they knew it. I 
I delivered more babies. I delivered more babies than they had, and they knew it. And so they didn't look at me as some um, quack, you know, some crazy barefoot hippie anymore. It was Uh like, oh, this lady's my mom's age. I think I'll call her (laughs) ma'am, you know? (laughs) And consequently, my clients were treated better. And I think actually the community benefited from that. I don't know, what do you call it? Um, Matriarchal um, figure being there or something. Yeah, yeah, you got to express a little bit of matriarchy, which is which is beautiful, and and um, reaping a little bit of the rewards of of really painful practice over the years. It's like you should at least have that, right? Yeah, yeah, right. and it kind of. Yeah. I think I would like to think at least that it kind of opened the door for the ones coming behind. You know, the, yeah. the next generation of midwives because yeah, because they could respect you, they could hear you, and then they could see, oh, they actually do respect you. And then oh, the yes, next one, they may be like, oh, midwives, no, you know? yeah. yeah, yeah, right, 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 yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's yeah. very cool. That hmm. cool. Well, I would love for uh, one or both of you to tell us a story. Will you tell us a story from? back in the day like some quintessential birth story you remember from all these years of attending births something that was really surprising or really intense or I don't know tell us a story take us on a journey what do you remember go for it Vicky oh there's so many (laughs) I know right I'm putting you on the spot it's like 12 chapters in the book is already here I'm trying to, which would be one of the ones that you all would enjoy. Um, I have to say that one of the most impressive ones to me was very early when I started practicing in Pensacola, I had a delightful couple who were American Indians, uh, both by birth, and they were very young. Um, They were maybe 20 and 17, uh, but very much into their heritage. Um, Both sets of parents were obviously full-blooded Indian. And so they had American Indian and they had um, very definite ideas of how they wanted this birth to work. And I ended up delivering the two sons and a daughter for them. But the first one was really interesting. We had the baby at her mother's house, um, which was actually a double wide trailer um, right on the river uh, and um, I was told by this gentleman that my spirit was a wolf spirit um, in the Indian thing. I don't know anything about that, to be honest with you, but I respected his opinion. And as I went to the home visit, I came up the front steps to the trailer and they opened the door and I was met by a full grown white wolf that had been the girl's wolf her pet since she was like five or six this this wolf had grown up with her and um beautiful just gorgeous blue eyes and just oh really beautiful and they opened the door and I saw the wolf and I said hmm okay and she said no come on in and I went in and I, I said is it okay if I acknowledge her and she said oh you can get better 
you can put her if you made it through the door you're good <laughs> okay all right so we went in uh did the home visit met everybody figured out what we were going to be doing she went into labor she was a first time mom with that first baby it was a boy we didn't know that but it was a boy um and she went into labor and labored kind of quietly overnight um rather stoic um for a young lady who was maybe just turned 18 at that point she was she had her act together they also had a cradle board for the baby and the dad had literally made a special knife to cut the cord with that was very important to them and nobody was to say anything about what sex the baby was because they didn't know I thought, okay, I can do that. I can do that. So they kept the parents, both sets of parents out on the other side of the house. And at one point things were going a little slow and I decided I would grow out and take a cat nap in front of the fireplace. So I lay down in front of the fireplace with a pillow from the couch and put my arms up on it. And then there was this thing laying beside me. And I realized <laughs> the wolf had followed me out of the room and stretched out and laid next to me. I thought, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And 20 minutes, 25 minutes later, I heard noises that meant I had to get back into the room. Um, and I got up and the wolf followed me right back in there. And um, here comes this beautiful bouncing baby boy. He was like eight, 12. He was a good sized baby. And he comes out and he's absolutely fine. And I didn't say a word. Nobody around us said a word. The parents weren't even in there. They had no idea. And nobody said anything about the fact that it was a boy. And as the baby came out, she reached down and picked him up kind of underneath of the arms and sort of held him in front of her. And the wolf who was standing next to me howled. And her four male puppies who were right outside the back door also howled. And they howled probably for a minute or so, all of them in unison, howling and howling and howling. And the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. And I thought, oh, this is just so cool. And I said, what do you have a name? And his name is River. Only his name is River in Lakota because that's what they are. And I can't say it, so. But anyway, they're still very good friends of mine. They have been over the years, as I said, but yeah. the. The wolf birth, I think, will ever stay with me. And he cut the knife, the, the um, cord with, Charlie cut the cord with the knife that he had. And uh, eventually the baby was on the cradle board and wow. it was very cool. Very <clears throat> what, a, what a window into a world and a culture that you wouldn't normally see. I, I had very little knowledge of that whatsoever. Um, and he is now, he builds American Indian flutes. He's, and wow. he sold them online forever and ever and ever. And she sews the Native American costumes that the women all dance in when they have powwows. So they, wow. they live up in uh, Alabama or yes, up in, uh, near Auburn, Alabama now. And they travel all wow. around to all the, the powwows. Wow. That was just- Well, Vicki, it's- um it's it's such a beautiful story and obviously it was so impactful to you to be a part of this different culture right um i wonder <clears throat> i wonder i mean i don't i don't know if there's really any question but 
um, as we all know, the history of America was very much um, uh, genocide towards Native Americans. And as a result, their community midwives were, were exiled, jailed, killed, et cetera, et cetera. And so that community, um, along with um, the Black and African-American community, lost their own caretakers. They lost their own midwives in many circumstances. So it's both um, really beautiful and really awesome that they got to return to a practice that is traditional for that culture, and also really kind of devastating that they didn't have a culturally matched care provider. I'm wondering, um, that is, is a big focus of, um, of the future of midwifery is helping to birth more BIPOC midwives so that they can serve their community so that we can have culturally matched care. Um, do you feel like that's happening? Do you feel like in Florida or where you've practiced before, are there, are there any culturally matched midwives as you transition out or it hasn't no. happened? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I was the only midwife yeah. in Pensacola for almost 20 years. And the next closest practicing midwife was at least 125 miles away. Wow. Um, you know, and wow. in her, I so that's, even find that's a still a problem in midwifery oh, yeah. is that is that don't we don't have culture of a problem in central and south florida there's many 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 more midwives down there than there are up in the panhandle true um, true yeah and, and the population of florida the population of florida is kind of distributed that way also correct so exactly less people in the panhandle yeah okay well thank you for that uh howling wolves You're at welcome. the birth Woo, that's an image i love that Thank yep. you for sharing. That, that was that was crazy, <laughs> but it was very fun actually. And the next day we had a major hurricane and a flood, and that whole house was gone. Oh, the whole house we oh had the birth in was was swept away in the flood the next day. Oh my! Now that is that crazy? that's some yep. crazy medicine for the, yep. like wow. wow. I called them that morning and I said, "What are y'all going to do about the flood?" And she said we're gone. We're gone someplace else. we got a place. We're taking the wolves all with us, blah, blah, blah. And her wow. parents were gone and everything. And literally the Blackwater River took house and the whole nine yards, which Whoa. I mean, that happens around here. We were in flood and hurricane territory. Right, right, right. September still birth, that, <clears throat> that's birthday. still so so shocking and so like interesting to imagine like that all traces of that magical moment right. where Fun. we're taken by the water and yep. he's named river and oh that's so powerful anyway yep. thank you for that oh, story you're pat, i want to hear what pat says <laughs> yeah pat tell us do you okay. have a story for us yeah over the years yeah um i'm like vicky it's like which one do i tell i know right, right? right. i know um one of the stories that i really enjoy telling is Um, from many years ago I was working with an Amish family and um, they already had a whole pack of kids Uh, lived in a big old farmhouse and um, I got a call from the dad now these people didn't have electricity didn't have phones Um, what they would do to use a telephone is that they would go to their neighbor's barn 
so non-Amish neighbor's right. barn, right, where there was a phone, and they were allowed to use that phone, but they didn't use it frequently. So, right, this father goes to his neighbor's barn, and he yells into the phone, "Midwife!" <laughs> and um, made it clear that his wife was in labor and I needed to come. Well, it was summertime, big thunder and lightning storm about ready to roll in. And um, I said, well, I'm on my way. I called my partner um, and we were, I would imagine she was on her way to the birth too. I don't remember that part exactly, but um, when I got there, the grandmother was leaving the house in a horse and buggy with all the other kids in there because God forbid that they should see this baby being born. And, right. um, and so I went into the house and mom was already pushing. So then I knew my partner was not going to get there in time. And I said to the dad, I said, okay, you're going to have to be my partner and help me. And he got all excited. Um, he, I, I said, see all these instruments over here that I'd laid out on this bureau. There was like a, a bureau to my left and the bed was to my right. And then there was a window on the other side of the bed where I could see the lightning. Right. So I say to the dad, okay, when I, when I tell you that I want hemostats, that means this. And if I want a delete section, that means this. Well, he turned to look at those things. He had his suspenders on and he, they had buttons on the bottom of the suspenders. He got his button caught on that crocheted coverlet Mm -hmm. as he turned and he pulled all of my instruments off on the floor and and he pulled the oil lamp off on the floor oh no so everything comes crashing to the floor the mama's over here pushing and on the floor there's a rag rug uh oh oil fire on a rag rug yep. so it ignites i mean this happened so so fast it was it's hard to explain so he realizes what's going on and he starts stomping stomping with his feet to get the flames out i jumped on the bed so i wouldn't get burned right, right. he gets the flames out mama's really getting down to business now the room is full of smoke and it's black. I mean, there's no lights to turn on and the oil right. lamp is off. Right. Except for lightning. <laughs> we had lightning. Yes. And so you'd hear the thunder and you know there was going to be some lightning. And I put my hands down there and mama would push and then the lightning would crack and I could see a little bit ahead, right? right. And, and then everything would be black again. 
and then pretty soon there'd be more thunder and then the lightning would crack. There'd be, oh, there's more head. It was the wildest thing. I mean, I caught, I caught the baby by my sense of feel and whatever flashing lightning was going on. So by the wow. time dad comes back <clears throat> with another oil lamp, sits it on the bureau, um, I'm holding a baby and he's all rattled, of course. And I don't know if you know much about Amish folks, they're lovely, but they're very reserved. They're not boisterous or jovial necessarily. I tell you what, the dad sat down on the bed. So the three of us are now on this bed and I handed the baby to the mama and the three of us just sat there and laughed and laughed until there were big tears because it was the wildest, most insane <laughs> delivery you can imagine. But well, you've got a fire baby, my yeah. gosh, between the lightning and the actual fire in the room. <laughs> Talk about a it dramatic entrance. Yeah. It was outrageous. Wow. Right. wow. Wow. Do you, did you ever have any um, uh, Amish apprentices over the years? No, I didn't. Um, I had really wished for one, but no. But yeah. in, in the Wyoming, Montana area, I did have a couple of Native American apprentices. Wow. They okay. are both currently practicing and, and um, they're absolutely wonderful. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. That's so Very exciting. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you both for your water and fire stories. I, I <laughs> love them. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I wonder if we can switch, switch gears now and, and talk about the decision to leave midwifery. Was that easy? Was that hard? How did that come to you? Pat, you want to start? Um, I was ready to leave. I think whenever I would start working with a new apprentice, I would always tell him the hardest part of this work is not babies that don't breathe and mothers that bleed out. The hardest part's being on call all the time. Right. And it's hard on everybody. It's hard on your family. It's just, it's a, that's a tough thing to do because you're always like vigilant, hyper vigilant. You know, your phone goes everywhere with you. And before we had cell phones, we wore beepers. I don't know. Vicky right. probably did. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, before that I had a CB radio. <laughs> yeah. And so I was ready to not be on call, you know? Um, the last couple of years, I guess, um, one of my previous apprentices had become a partner for me and she was awesome. So we could sort of split things schedule wise. Um, but even then it was just hard to be on call all the time. And I think as you get older, that becomes even more hard. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, my clients, when they'd have their babies, they'd be in 14 different positions before the baby would come out, which meant that the midwife has to practically stand on her head. You know, there are plenty of babies that I caught with me kind of, you know, bent over sideways and yeah, <laughs> totally. the kid on the floor. And then I, 
you know, I kept mm-hmm. my chiropractor in business for sure. But <laughs> I think totally. I think there's a time where, and it's going to be different for different midwives, but there's a time where either physically or emotionally or both, or maybe for some midwives, even mentally, we're not at our optimum anymore. And we got a lot of good stories to tell, like we're doing tonight. And we can we can teach for sure. We can write books. Yeah. Um, but I being on I, the front lines, I, maybe not no longer need to be on the front lines. I think midwives need to learn that they are replaceable. They really Ooh. are replaceable. And midwives who say, I was called to this work. Ooh, that's a term that just makes me go, Ooh, because. Which is funny because, Pat, you were actually called. <laughs> I called you and be like, come work with me. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I hear me. Yeah, I get it. I get it, though. Called, I get it. And, mm-hmm. and the implication is that God called them or the universe. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and if that's the case, first of all, why are they telling everybody? that God talks to them. And then secondly, (laughs) if that really is the case, it kind of, it kind of makes them out to be the midwife that can do everything and anything. I can deliver premature triplets with my left hand, you know, because I'm called. And so Uh almost like a martyrdom complex kind of like, and what I've seen yeah. is that mm-hmm. it's those midwives who are, yeah, kind of into the martyr mode. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a lot of enemies saying this, I'm sure. But well, that's part of the privilege of being in the stage you are. Is who cares? <laughs> who cares? It's like those are the hate. ones that do have a really hard time. Let Let it go. go. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I've assisted those midwives at birth when they were older than me and I was a little bit younger and they were falling asleep when they shouldn't have been um, and having to go home and get their medicine. I don't know. I just think there's a time when you got to realize that there's another generation that can do this. And yeah replaceable you know yeah that's beautiful I'm so grateful for that wisdom thank you for sharing that yeah you're welcome how about you Vicki what what took you to this place what what made you make this decision well part of it was that I was a solo practitioner for my whole career I never was able I had a birth center for four years I was never able to find another midwife to come and help me because lots of reasons. Um, very strong work, work ethic. I didn't never did it for the money. I just wanted to keep the bills paid in a roof over our house where we had the, the babies coming. Um, I think the biggest part was something that, that Pat mentioned was um, all the years of, um, I had wonderful assistants. They were all doulas. They were great, but still all the years of Puffing all those supplies into the truck, out of the truck, into the truck, out of the truck, being in all the weird positions. 
Um, and I <clears throat> tried very hard not to do that. I it eventually I retired um, at the beginning of 2016. And um, in November of that year, I had my spine rebuilt because it had Ooh. just deteriorated that much. And I was really starting to have health problems because of that. So looking toward that after keeping my chiropractor in business for so many years, just like Pat did, um, I could see that coming down the pike. And I just said, you know, I can't continue to do this anymore. On call is a philosophy I think that a lot of the up and coming midwives don't get how much responsibility it is to always say, well, I'll be there unless my pager goes off. You know, um, unless somebody's in labor, I'll plan on being there. But, you know, kids' birthdays, uh, Christmas, all kinds of stuff. And I was- Graduations. For a lot of, everything, you know, I was a single mom for a long time and it was really difficult to keep all those things up in the air at the same time and not disappoint people. But, at the end, it was just fine. You know, I really needed to, okay, this is going to be the end. If you're going to get pregnant, get pregnant now, because I'm leaving at the end of December. And um, one of my wonderful, I had a whole slew of Mennonite clients, like, like Pat had the Amish people, and we had Mennonite communities around here. And I had my last client, the last birth I did was baby number 12 for her. And I had done the first 11. So I said, well, you know, I, my license is going to go up in flames at the end of the year. Um, she said, I don't care. <laughs> and it did, we didn't need to do any of that stuff at all. But you face the deals of overhead. If you have an office, if you have a birth center, it's crazy overhead, malpractice insurance, building insurance, car insurance, wear and tear on your vehicles. You, you're in a, a a place where, you know, sometimes getting out on the road is endangering your life or certainly could be. Um, same thing here. You know, we, we have a hurricane. I'm out of business because if the ambulances aren't running, I cannot practice. It's just that simple. You take that. But so many midwives do, right? They go out in snowstorms and they go out in rainstorms and they go out Thank in you. the dead of winter and ice on the floor, all these things. Yeah. Yeah, and fodder for books that are on Oprah. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I know they do, and I think if anything, the progress that I saw as the more years I put in, and the more years I put in by myself, I did. I don't want to say I did less and less, but I intervened less and less and less and less, and I really developed the fine art of sitting back and watching it unfold and holding tight to my protocols. If you hit the edge of my protocol, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to transfer. And I had a wonderful mm-hmm. maternal fetal medicine fellow that backed me up and we could just you know, waltz into the hospital and there were residents there, OBGYN residents that were like, okay, so what's going on? Let me see your labor chart. How can we help you? And the first time mm-hmm. they did that to me, I almost fell on the floor, but it was nice to see the younger group coming up and saying, she's a midwife. Yes. But look at her records. Wow. You know, that's beautiful. That's, that's just that's the way it ended up. It was time for me to, to do something else. Yeah. You know, and I don't think well, you ever Vicky- stop being a midwife, but you stop being on call. That's what 
the thing is to pass. You're no longer on call, but I get calls from my former students all the time. Yeah, about, yeah. You know, they I got this and can I send you yeah. a picture? I've never seen this before. And yeah, that's yeah, yeah. absolutely fine. I said, you wake me up if you have to. I do not care. I don't mind that's being beautiful. students. That's awesome. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, yeah. Vicki, I think I've heard you say this kind of a couple of times is the kind of the evolution of your perspective, right. how you feel like you have gotten more boundaried and more conscious of how it affects, like it ripples out. Right. What do you think is responsible for that other than time and experience? Getting older. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, it has something to yeah. do with it. But again, getting more experience under my belt and watching how important it is. The very first document I drew up when I started practicing in 1974 was a protocol book. And it said, how do you address the following things? And I still have that original protocol book and I've altered it a little bit to conform with being a CPM and being an LM, but you know, it really wasn't that different. I was not comfortable doing twins. It wasn't legal to do twins here. I was not comfortable doing breaches. I ended up doing a couple of surprise breaches anyway, and I was very comfortable about doing that. But um, just you kind of define what your limits are. And yeah. I would talk about that during prenatal care and during the home visit a lot. You know, here's yeah. the limits. I cannot guarantee you that we are going to have a wonderful home birth. I'm going to do everything I can to keep you and your baby safe. Yeah. And if that means that we have to get in the car or get in an ambulance and go to the hospital, we are going in the car or to the ambulance and doing what we need to do. Yeah, because safety is the goal, very often, not the mode of birth. Yeah, yeah. and I, I love that distinction. I also teach that. And I think that might get lost in translation over the last couple of decades. Do you feel that way as well? I think so. I think, you know, you have to pull back from this thing about my midwife bag of tricks is not going to go and solve every problem. If you start <laughs> yeah. pulling things out of your midwife bag of tricks, by the second time you reach in there for a trick, you need to go someplace else and take your labor chart and be objective about this situation. It's either going to mm -hmm. fix itself or it's not going to fix itself. Not because you did blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> that's where I, yeah. Bat heads you know, I've, I've head. tried to, I've tried to figure out like, how can safety not be people's goal? Like what, wh why are they missing that really what I consider foundational concept? And I was looking at some of the reading materials and I think <laughs> I think inadvertently as a way to try to reclaim our sovereignty in midwifery, we somehow have planted this idea in one example is the whole trust birth initiative. You know, if you just trust it enough, it'll happen, which, you know, we all have opinions about that. Yeah. And the, <laughs> and the other one in cases like that. So, yeah, I know. Yeah. And the other one, I feel like, um, is Anne Fry. And, you know, we, we all like kind of want to worship Anne Fry because of her tremendous academic prowess and her ability to write these prolific books. But like in, in one of her books, there's a, there's a section on, on how to deliver conjoined twins. And I think like, when I read that, I was like, okay, maybe this is the problem. <laughs> this might be the problem. Like in an effort to say like, we are knowledgeable, we somehow have lost 
the concept of what normal and natural it like we've lost we've lost our boundaries and and adopted that belief and then the newer midwives coming up they kind of see this and they'd be like oh yeah I should be able to do all these things and Not and it's a totally false able, narrative I think if yeah. it's there's nothing wrong with knowing what that is and knowing what the implications of that may or may not be but you have to know your limits if you're not comfortable doing that don't go there find somebody right. else who can better but i think before you even have the concept of what you're comfortable with right. if you've already believed that i'm supposed to be able to do everything then it sets the the concept that we'll never have any boundaries like right. for instance i'm certain that ann fry researched and wrote that because there is some midwife practicing in the bush somewhere that like had no access to backup right. and like really right. needed that concept and i think the big differentiation or the big distinction that I like to make with newer students is I'm like, you can't just practice in a vacuum. You're practicing in the community and you need to look around and say, what is the standard of care? What are the other providers doing? Not just midwives, but other OBs, right? Because that's the standard you'll be held to in a court of law, in, in the parents' eyes. They're thinking right. what is normal in this area? And so if there's no other provider and there's no way to get help, then what is normal is like, please save their lives however you can, right? right. But if, if you're, but if you live two miles from a hospital where, where they induce everyone at 39 weeks, like you can't push boundaries or else right. you are endangering yourself as much as the clients. And that's a, it's an interesting concept. I wonder like, how did your boundary like did you did you always have strong boundaries Vicky or where did they come from because you I are very boundary they came from seeing what happened I was so grateful that I spent three years as a resident in the hospital and that was mm -hmm. just part of the training that was here in Florida because I got to see if you have this and you don't recognize or address this it's going to go south in a big hurry and I saw a lot more complications handled then I think a lot of the midwives that are in training now have the opportunity to see because there aren't many hospitals that would come in and let you let you be in a uh, you know a resident there. Yeah, I was just I was just fortunate that that was an opportunity I had. Right. Um, wow. But you still wow. need you still need to recognize that your primary focus is the safety of that baby not necessarily the safety of the mother, but if you take care of the baby by default, you're gonna take care of the mother as well. You have to put your flag up and be the baby's advocate. That's really necessary. Again, this is- Yeah, I think there's lots of people. mother advocates, right? Like lots yeah. of people advocating for yeah. the mother, but there's right. there's few advocating for the baby in that in that safety concept. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's really thoughtful. Dr. Nagoya um, is the one who turned me on to that and Michelle huh. Dawn too, huh. um, because their, their approach to what happens to the newborn during labor and birth kind of made me stop and rethink, okay, I need to think about what's happening to the newborn. If I was a newborn, would I want to come out in an environment that had this, 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 and this? Hmm, maybe not. Maybe everybody should just shut up. <laughs> no hatting, no chatting, no, you know, padding, leave yeah, the baby yeah. alone. Um, and, yeah. and 
Michelle was the person I was at the farm and at a conference and he did a whole presentation on that about the newborn's uh, central nervous system and the adjustments that had to be made in addition to all the cardiovascular things that were going to happen. And I thought, yeah, huh, okay, well, yeah, that, that sounds like a reasonable approach to the problem. And right now everybody's kind of focused on the mom and not on the package that's in the mom. Hmm. It, I think I think the pendulum's going to swing. I think we're going to kind of go off the deep end on one, and we're going to end up coming back into the middle. That's usually how medicine works. But you know, well, I would say I feel like the midwifery and the medicine pendulums are actually opposite. So to me, I feel like the medical model is exclusively focused on the baby, treating the mother like almost like a vessel. And midwifery is True. focused almost exclusively True. on the mom and treating right. the baby like a side note. And I feel like when we find balance between the two, right. we, then I think we'll be really- we'll There's help, a happy place healthy. in the middle. There's a happy place in the middle, trust me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm always looking for the middle way for sure. Well, so um, Pat, what's next? Now that you're on the other side, you're not on call anymore. What do you do now? You know, for a couple of years, um, after I retired, I worked for WIC, Women, Infants, yeah. and Children, mm -hmm. because it was sort of maternity care, sort yeah. of baby care, but it was really regimented and bureaucratic. Um, and then, you know, COVID happened and we worked from home for quite a while. And then they wanted to go back into the office and I felt like it was too early anyway. So I left that and that was like my real final retirement, I guess. Um, but it helped me to sort of wean away from midwifery slowly. Interestingly, and Vicki, you may have done crazy things like this too, but when I retired from midwifery, I continued a lot of habits that I hadn't been real conscious of things like every night before I would go to bed, I would lay out clean clothes, <laughs> right? Clean clothes, yep. um, my, everything to hurry up and get dressed if somebody called in the middle of the night. Right. Um, the coffee in my coffee pot in the morning, um, would, after I would have my one or two cups of coffee, I'd pour the rest of it into a thermos bottle, right? And that would be sitting at the door so that I'd grab my clothes I'd laid out and grab my thermos bottle full of coffee out the door to go to a berth. Well, even when I wasn't on call anymore, I was still laying out the darn clothes before I go to bed at night. I was still making sure that the thermos was, I mean, just dumb stuff right. like that that's incidental to what you do as a as a midwife and just yeah um and still carrying my phone around with me everywhere I would into the bathroom you know if I had a hot you know when I had my hot tub it was like wait I don't need to have that phone here right you know? yeah a lot but of unlearning yeah. yeah 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 you just have to change your habits some um it's hard not to stay connected. Yeah. You, you feel like you're in that loop all the time when 
have to have hypervigilance in your car. You have to have everything ready to jump out the door at at any time. I never had any regrets for retiring. I really, I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I, I do worry about some of my peers that are still practicing when they're even, I mean, I'm 72 and they're still practicing and they're older than me and I worry about them and I worry about their clients, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And I love your message that, you know, you can be replaced. So relax and live a good life. Right. (laughs) Midwives make really good grandmas. I've found out. Yeah. 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 Well, so, um, to end today's conversation, I'd love it if you both would reflect on this question. And that is, what do you wish the newer midwives that come after you know? Hmm. Um, I would say if, if they're students, they need to recognize that they're students that they don't have to know it all, that they're in this period of time to learn and not to be a midwife. They're a student. Um, And that that's both like freeing. It's freeing that you don't have to know it all. And it's also like- You're supposed to make mistakes. When you're a student, you're learning, you're supposed to make mistakes. So if you get straight A's and you never have an instructor, a preceptor, a senior midwife scold you or correct you, you're not getting a good education. You know, you got to keep in mind that you're a student and stop counting how many damn births you've been to. It's, (laughs) It's like this checklist thing that they do that is all consuming and has just overwhelmed the students thinking. And it's like, stop thinking about that. You know, start thinking about APGAR scores and, and, you know, start thinking about the position of this baby and how to communicate with the hospital when you're doing a transport. Stop thinking about your stupid checklist. I mean, I know that's part of the reality, but it's not the focus. It doesn't need to be the focus. Yeah. Yeah. Just be a student when you're a student and, and maybe you only need to attend 40 births. Go ahead and attend 50. If your teacher will let you do that, do it, you know, soak it up. Mm, Beautiful. Thanks, Pat. I agree. Mm. I, I think that's very wise words for sure. If, the, if I could change anything about the educational system, I think, especially in the places where you've got MEAC accredited schools and, um, you know, everybody has their eye on that NARM exam that they're going to pass. And I keep reminding everybody it's an entrance exam. That means that you, this is like graduation, and now you get to go into the next part of your education, which is the hands-on stuff. And I wish we would have some organized way of pairing up 
newly graduated midwives with someone who's been around the block a few times. You know, it's so funny. I wrote a master's degree on exactly that. I I did not know that. I wrote my thesis on creating a postgraduate residency program for graduates with senior midwives. And I would love to watch that. I agree. I think we need to pair that. That's a wonderful idea. Yeah, I think that would be absolutely wonderful. I would, and oddly enough, it doesn't have to be centered on midwife to midwife because I learned as much Exactly. In fact, I, I focus on all seven provider types, MDs, DOs, family practice, CNMs, CPMs, CMs, all of it. It should be interprofessional because the focus is on the location of care, not the provider type. Right. Yeah. I learned more from my maternal medicine friend than I learned probably the whole time that I was in midwifery school. Exactly. And And he probably learned from you. He did. And and that's the beautiful thing. To me. (laughs) Yes, you learned from you. That's yeah, beautiful. And, and it's That's it's beautiful. The breadth of being able to, okay, well, you know, I've really only been in practice for 10 years and I haven't seen this, 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 and this. And you've been in practice for 30 years and you've done almost 10,000 deliveries and you've seen quintuplets and every kind of birth defect you can imagine. And he would always just kind of calm me back down and say, you know, it's okay that person would be better off out of the hospital because if you bring her into the hospital, they're going to slap monitors on her and do IVs and you're just going to back yourself into a corner and then they're going to call me and ask me to come to a C-section and I don't want to. So it's like, oh, that's great. Okay. That's yeah, great. It was. That's it was. great. We handle you can learn from each other so well. That's awesome. That's what you well, have to do. Well, what about... Um, just to continue on this question, backing away from students, Vicki, think about the midwife who is 10 years in, um, you know, whatever. How do they create um, a sustainable practice where they can leave like both of you? Because unfortunately there are midwives who leave early from burnout and right. there are midwives that leave against their will from court cases. Right. And I'm just wondering, like, how do we how do we cultivate this reality where you both worked until you were done, top of your career, left of your own accord, and were, you know, walking away without that bitter taste in your mouth, like so many midwives do? How how do we cultivate this for someone who's already into it? What do they need to remember? Well, Vicky talked about protocols. Yeah. And I think nowadays they call them practice guidelines, but it's right. the same thing. Right. And, you know, in Montana, now Montana started licensing midwives before Meek or MEAC, as you pronounced right. it, before that existed. Right. So, so they didn't have a thing that said you have to be a graduate of a Meek accredited school, which right. a lot of the more recent states to licensed midwives that's written into their law not in montana in montana one of the requirements and their requirements were very comprehensive and detailed one of the requirements was that each student had to write her own protocols you could not go to for example new mexico's protocols are all posted online you can't go there 
copy those off and turn them in and say, these are my protocols. No, you have to write your own protocols. And that's, a that's been a requirement for CPM for many years. But it's not what's happening in practice. Aha, uh -huh. interesting. You can't get a license in Florida they're, without somebody signing off on your protocols. Yeah, yeah you can. You have to have protocols, but they're just copied and pasted from your preceptor from the oh, ones yeah. free on internet. And they're not, Montana, they're not, Montana, you got to write your own. Right. And, and it, they tell you which topics you will write a protocol on. And there's over okay. 100. Well that's over a hundred topics. Yeah, that's good. Um, so where, where I'm going with this is to answer your question. Um, I think if midwives write their own, which is the ideal, um, and take them seriously and revise them okay. once in a while. Exactly. As things come if, up, as more they, data comes up, yeah. If they use that as their self-defined boundaries for their practice, then they've got that all established so that if they're at a birth and mama's water's been broken for 24 hours, if that's her protocol, right. 24 hours, we go to the hospital. Right. Then she has to discipline herself, the midwife does, abide by the protocol, right? Because she's been, this the midwife's so been awake for 24 hours too. She's not thinking right. as clearly as she should be. Right. If she just sticks to her protocols, she's probably gonna do okay. Yeah. She's this is such good advice, Pat. And in fact, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but I take um, I take consults for midwives who are in the midst of investigations, lawsuits, bad outcomes, that sort of thing. I, I do this case review for midwives, and I most of the calls that I get are um, are not the, the complaint is not what happened. The complaint is not like we have this baby on cooling or we have this baby who you know fetal demise. The problem is you didn't follow the protocols that you right. said you would. And this goes back to that idea. Most of them are copy and pasted and they haven't read through the 500 page document and really understand what they promise that they say they're going to do. They're right. just flying by the seat of their pants. And I love this advice, Pat. And I feel like I need to offer like a protocol writing workshop or something because it seems to be a thing of the past. Well, Maybe, I, did. Pat, I mean, Pat, you want to help me? You yeah. want to help me create no, this research? I, I taught yeah. my students how to do it. And now I have to sit here and remember all the parts. But as I recall, there's the specific incident or, or topic of whatever the protocol is. Then you write what you're going to do if that happens. Then you write your rationale right. for what you're going to do when that happens. Then you write, how did you come up with that rationale? What references? Evidence. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And That's then excellent. you write, what does Montana law say about this particular thing? And sometimes Montana law doesn't address that. And then you can just write in A. But those five parts to every protocol, and, and then they would, my students would submit their written protocol to me, I would re review it with them and make suggestions, but it was their protocol. They created it, 
the grammar might suck, the spelling might be bad, but it's theirs and they would have to do 10, maybe 10 protocols, you know, in a uh, three-week three period or something, I don't know, and submit it to the state. And then the state had to approve it and send it back. And there were students, I can think of three, that one of them was mine, who turned in the copy and paste and they were rejected. Because right. you know mm. what they're copy and paste. You Because then the state has everyone's on file and they know who's copying and pasting. So interesting. And, well, and they I, know I love they're that violating advice. it too. If they, you know, if there is an yeah. incident, they can the state can pull up the protocol and say you didn't do what you said you were going to do. Which is the the root of all complaints. I have to say, in, in midwifery, there's we're not cutting off someone's wrong leg. You know, it's like, there's not room for right. that much error. What's happening is right. we're not doing what we said we're going to do. Um, and then of course there's the follow-on, which is, which is law. Like you can't, if you, or your state has law, you can't break that law. But, but the major complaint is, is uh, following protocols. That's such a good idea. Thank you, Pat. Thank you but so then, much for this whole conversation. I just love but it. But then yeah. when, when you get the hang of it, what writing, I mean, you write a hundred of these things and you've kind of got right. the hang of it. Yeah. You can take that same skill and write other boundaries for yourself. How much are you going to charge? What if the client doesn't pay you? You know? Yeah. What if, what if yeah, the list is endless with, yeah, it gives you a framework for how to be boundary. That's really beautiful. That's that's good terminology framework. Yeah. If you've got that set up, you're going to succeed. I think you're going to succeed. You're also yeah, in a legally so defensible position if there is exactly a and you don't follow exactly. your own protocol, whatever that happens to be, you're screwed. I mean, basically your malpractice yep. will probably not pay the claim because you didn't follow your own written protocol. Exactly. Those are the exactly. Called on in by the lawyers is but what in the Same. world is this exactly. midwife thinking? She's in a birth center. Yeah. The birth center law and rules says clearly, blah, blah, blah. Her protocol book, which is signed off every year when they inspect the birth center, says blah, yep. blah, blah. And she didn't yep. do any of it. You know, yeah. it's like, that's yeah. actually negligence, right? And, and I, yeah. I talk about how that happens. And I, I equate it to that frog in boiling water concept, yeah. right? <laughs> it's like we as midways, we just slowly boiled to death in this soup of like 24, 48 hour labor management, sleeplessness, right. peeing out right. in the backyard, like nobody conscious of like what's happening. And, um, and, and the way out of that, um, obviously birth centers and the structure around birth centers is one way out of that. But if you're right. going to continue to practice in the community setting, it's, it's these boundaries and being really clear right. on your protocols and then right. following them. Like Pat said, so important. You guys are, are awesome. And such a wealth of knowledge. I hope that one of the things that's for you after this transition out of midwifery is teaching. I hope that you both are, are teaching in some way. If you don't have an avenue, please, please talk to Midwifery Wisdom Collective. We'd love to create a platform <laughs> for you. We need more educators. We need more teachers who um, really get this process. Unfortunately, one of the biggest complaints from students nowadays is the poor precepting, that, that people yeah. don't know how to really teach. And so you guys have been through the fire and, and come out the other side, like, beautiful, beautiful golden people who've been doing the work and 
I'd love to encourage you to, to use this wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. Don't be, don't be on call, but do share yeah. your brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> do share your that, brilliance. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm glad to connect you too. And, and thank, thank you so you. much. This will be on all midwifery platforms and, and for everyone can follow us on midwifrywisdom.com. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you, Pat. You are quite Goodbye. welcome. Good night. Have a good night. Thank you.